there. I thought that was the, I thought that was the uh, Blue Ridge Conference equivalent of sitting in the corner, but I guess not. That's... <laughs> Incidentally, there's already three things I don't understand. Preachers thinking there's already three things I don't understand about this camp. Number one, the one I mentioned last night. I still want to figure out what it is to molest an animal. Maybe I don't want to figure out what it is, but so I... <laughs> okay. Number two. 11 o'clock is lights out, but it's not lights out. That, that I really can't figure out. 11 o'clock is lights out, but if you're going to play your ball, do it someplace else or whatever it is. So you have to explain to me what lights out is. When I was in college... Yeah, okay, all right, okay. The third one... What, what do you expect your people to do when the lights are out? <laughs> Skip it, forget that. A third one I really can't understand is this. The Blue Ridge Conference... They said, I get a call from Larry McHarg. Would you speak for the Blue Ridge Conference? I thought, oh, this is great. Down in Virginia, beautiful area. <laughs> and I said, man, I'll tell you, that Presbytery of Southern California, they got lots of bucks out there. <laughs> Go all the way out to Virginia. And I said, great, Blue Ridge Conference. What part of the Shenandoah Valley? He says, oh, no, 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 no. This is the Blue Ridge Conference in Southern California. So what would you do stealing the name of our mountain? And now, I find there is no Blue Ridge. And what... Don't try to explain it. I've got to cover the material here. But anyway, what's that? Yeah, real OPC. We've always done it that way, right? <laughs> you know, the, okay. <laughs> what's that? <laughs> okay. All righty. But since you stole our Eastern name, we're going to borrow some of your uh, Blue Ridge Conference Association personnel to come out and show us how to do it. I enjoyed your board meeting last night. Do you ever sleep... I watched this guy last night. I can barely. He's, everybody else is exhausted, and this guy's ready to do a triathlon. So that's what do you eat anyway? <laughs> okay. All righty. We're in part number two. This is page twelve in your little booklet. Okay. Uh, remember, we're dealing with the Christian's life and death battle: mortification of sin. Remember that comes from our membership vows: mortifying sin. Text Romans eight thirteen. I described the battle. We describe the soldiers, describe the weapon, describe the promise, describe the condition. What are the reasons? Indwelling sin always abides in believers. It's always at work. Unmortified sin leads to great sin. There's a plan of God that you be holy. There's twin dangers, remember, of self-mortification or of not seeking to mortify sin. Now, what I wanted to do is carry your conscience. I hope you see that this duty is biblical and that it's necessary. Now, if you're not convinced of that, please speak with me because I want you to be convinced this duty is biblical and necessary. Now, what I want to do in the second part this morning, the title is Being Sure You Are Really Fighting the Battle. What mortification is not and what it is. Now, by the time we get done this section, you will understand why bookstores have as about two-thirds of their content self-help books. And I'm not being facetious. Okay, You really are going to understand why bookstores... I've got a friend of mine in Southern California, the son of one of the sons of Tony Curto, Matt, and he works in one of what is a Super Crown bookstore. And uh, Matt was saying how many people come for self-help books. And he's like his dad. He's got some guts. And he says, you know, if you really want help, you ought to read the Bible. Okay, and okay. So, but you're going to see really why there's. Uh, I don't know how long he'll keep his job, but at least I'm glad he's bold. So keep that brother in mind, if you. 
Um, okay, let me give you an illustration. You know what war games are? In war games, there's very sophisticated maneuvers that are done by pilots, for example. And they really, they drop real bombs. And, you know, it's real activity, and it can be very dangerous, but they bomb garbage dumps. Okay? Now, that's a lot of what people do when it comes to mortifying sin. That's why we need to be sure that we know what mortification is and what it's not. So, let's first of all deal with what mortification is not. What it is not. And allow the big words, they're in your little... Uh, books here, A, B, C, D, and E, and then I'll try to break them down for you. Mortification is not eradication. It is not the eradication of sin. What do I mean by eradication? Eradication would be the total rooting out and destroying of all sin. I'll say it again, but write it down if you want totally rooting out and destroying all sin and all its effects in this life. That's eradication, and that's what mortification is not, number one. It is not totally rooting out and destroying all sin and all its effects in this life. Anyone who tells you that by letting go and letting God or by a second work of grace or whatever they want, they have totally rooted out and destroyed all sin and all its effects in this life either, again, has a dismally low view of sin or an impoverished view of holiness. Now, totally rooting out and destroying all sin and all its effects in this life is your goal. We are to perfect holiness in the fear of God. Be ye perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Matthew 5.48 That's your goal. But it is never accomplished in the best believers in this life. And with all due respect to those today who want to try to show that Romans 7 does not apply to a Christian, to my mind, all of their arguments are like colanders that you drain spaghetti in. They might seem to hold a lot of content, but they got an awful lot of holes at the bottom. Paul does not say, O wretched man that I was. He says, O wretched man that I am. Okay? So, and he said, even at the end of his life, 2 Timothy, what does Paul say? Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I was chief. Right? Is that what he says? Whom I was chief? No, that's not what it... That's, that the NIV say that? No, not even, not even the NIV is that bad. Of whom I am chief. Okay? And if you like the NIV, we will pray for you. I'll tell you a little story about that once. Sinclair Ferguson is a very dear friend of mine. And dear Sinclair Ferguson in the United States went in Rome do what the Romans do. And so he was in a nearby church and had done a series of messages. And I went up to him afterwards. I said, Sinclair, let me ask you a question. You are one of the finest preachers I've ever met in your life. And you really do expository preaching and apply it. Let me ask you a question. How can you use the NIV and do that? And he said, well, I said, you know, in America, very proper Scotsman. He says, in America, that's what the churches use. And so that's what I use too. Ah, Sinclair... The NIV is the Leah of the evangelical world. In 20 years, the evangelicals will wake up and say, Behold Leah. To which you can say, Ah, but Leah was more fruitful than Rachel. But anyway, six months later, I saw Sinclair at uh, Westminster Seminary. We had lunch. And right in the middle of the conversation, he says, You know, about six months ago, you said to me, How can you preach using the NIV, doing expository preaching? And uh, I said, That's right. And he said, You know, you're absolutely right. It can't do it because I'll do all the expositing for you. Well, anyway, if you use the NIV, I'm sorry. Um, but uh, I am. Okay, eradication. That's your goal. Uh, never accomplished here. The goal, remember, is new creation. A full new creation. Okay, we are new creation in Christ. We are citizens of heaven right now in Christ. 
We do say, Lord, I long to be perfectly whole. Christianity is union with Christ. But there's a restlessness here because we're not in the new heavens and the new earth yet. And however you want to exegete, we are citizens of heaven, and we are. We ain't there yet. And even if we die before Christ comes back, our bodies aren't there yet. So there's a, a certain restlessness that comes. Let me give you an illustration. Tom McManus and I, kind of old home for a week for me too. I knew Tom years ago, and it's good to fellowship with him. But we were commiserating today. Uh, he can't be here with his wife. His two daughters are ill, and it's difficult for my wife to be out at this time as well with our children at home. And as much as I love you folks and love Southern California, it's just not quite right. I'm really here, okay, and really minister, but it's not quite right because my other half is not with me. Okay, and I'm still joined to my wife, but I'm away from her. Okay, and that's sort of what the Christian life is like here. We're one flesh with Christ, but not quite right yet. Okay, so there is no eradication of sin in this life. It's never accomplished in this life. There'll be great victories, but there will be no complete ones yet. Okay? Ultimate victory is when Christ comes back. Now look with me in Philippians 3 and verse 10. I will try to remember to give you the text more than once. Philippians chapter 3 verses 10 through 16. Now notice the dynamic here. Philippians 3.10 Paul's goal is that he might know Him, that he might know Christ and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings, being conformed to His death, that by any means I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. Verse 12, not that I've already attained or am already perfected. Now you really wonder how people who hold the sinless perfection can believe this, okay? But I press on like a runner. I continue to run. Even though I'm weary, my eye is on the goal and I press that I might lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I don't count myself to have apprehended. I don't count myself as having had it in its fullness yet. But one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward. This is the stretch and the run where you're told to reach your hands out and stretch as if you could grab the goal and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Now notice the language. Therefore, let us, as many as are mature, have this mind. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. Note that Paul didn't carry out discipline because there were some differences on that matter. But he says, no, God will show this to you. As many as have this mind, if in, then press on if they are mature and do this. And then in verse 21, this Jesus will transform our lowly body that it might be conformed, that is conformed in fullness to His glorious body according to the working by which He is able even to subdue all things to Himself. Now this teaches that full eradication is not accomplished in this life. So people ask, and your children ask, what then is the purpose of remaining in dwelling sin? I would imagine all of you have asked that. Why, why do we still struggle with it? Number one, it makes you live out of mercy. If any one of us in here could say, well, now we're sinlessly perfect, you live out of your works. And God wants you to live out of the mercy of Christ moment by moment. God does not want you to be Pharisees. He wants you to live out of the mercy of God in Christ. 
so that you do say with Paul, Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ my Lord. Number one, it makes you live out of mercy. Number two, it will make you seek your completeness in someone else. All fullness is in Christ. God loves bankrupt sinners who come to Jesus that He might make them rich in Himself. Those are at least two purposes of indwelling sin. And that, my friends, is the great danger when people come up and they will until Christ comes back give you the master key to the Christian life. People go to a Bill Gothard seminar and they've got the master keys to the Christian life and even the steps to unlock the door. And the latest teacher will give you the key to the Christian life. Folks, there's one master key to the Christian life and that is Christ, period. Okay? Alright? The master key of the Christian life is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, number two. Mortification is not moral reformation. Mortification of sin is not moral reformation. What is moral reformation? It is self-improvement. Self-help programs, 12-step recovery programs, seminars in which you learn all the steps that you must do so that you will become holy. What this does is it disguises the real problem by an outward change. The problem in moral reformation is that in itself there is no heart change. Hepatitis of the soul, a yellowing of the soul when it is covered up by makeup doesn't do a thing to the hepatitis and it will destroy you. Okay, That's what moral reformation is. Before God, it is hypocrisy. And for those who practice it in itself, I'm going to tell you what it is. It is a cleaner path to hell. Now, in saying that, I am not against moral reformation. There is a restraint of iniquity. But I'm going to tell you, if you want to be holy, moral reformation is not it. You tell someone who is a sinner they need to reform their lives, then, my friend, all you are doing is telling them how they can put a nice, cleaner way for them to go to everlasting destruction. You tell them immediately, now, you come to Christ in all of your sin. That's why the Bible teaches a full, free offer of the Gospel. Anyone who thirsts, you come to the waters. Him who does not have money, let him come by without money and without price. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your labor for what does not satisfy? Full, free offer of the gospel. Okay? The problem is no heart change. Before God, it is hypocrisy. For the one who practices, it is a clearer path to hell. John Owen put it this way, He hath got a heart that is more cunning, but not a new heart that is more holy. And you see what the deceptiveness of indwelling sin will do. I was talking with someone the other day, and they got Mormon neighbors asking about how you present the gospel. And he said, you know, they are they're good people. I said, I know, that's the problem. We don't think they're sinners. And you've got to show these rich young rulers that they're sinners. Okay? And so Owen said, He hath got a heart that is more cunning. Ah, see how good I am. But not a new heart that is more holy. Or as Ezekiel put it, they are plastered with untempered mortar. And that, my friends, is the great danger of moralism. The most popular Christian book for parents educating their children is Bill Bennett's The Book of Virtues with not a bit of gospel in it. 
biographies of great Christian leaders like George Washington, who was a deist. Now that's how serious this error is. And then children grow up and say, oh, well, that's Christianity. You wouldn't admit George Washington is a member of one of your churches today. Now, does that mean he wasn't a good president? No, we're thankful for him. But that's not Christianity, okay? Number three, mortification is not temperament modification. Now, follow me on this one. Mortification is not temperament modification. By temperament modification, I mean improving a constitutionally quiet, calm, and gentle nature. I know, my mom tried it on me and failed miserably. Not by nature, constitutionally quiet or calm or gentle. Temperament modification is trying to improve a constitutionally quiet, calm, and gentle nature. Now, here's the situation. Some, in the providence of God, have less unruly, less passionate, less outgoing and extroverted natures than others. There are Abigails in the Bible. What a sweetheart she was before David who wanted to go in and rake Nabal over the coals. There are Marys who sit at the feet of Jesus. And there are Marthas who are frantic that there's not enough food on the table for Jesus. There are sons of thunder. And there are sons of consolation. And those things may come just by the effect of God's providence in nature. Some become more refined due to discipline, due to being taught, you say, yes, sir, and yes, ma'am, and you write thank you notes. Some are more disciplined and courteous and full of worldly wisdom because they have parents that took time to teach their children some basic wisdom about life. But the danger is to substitute personality, background, culture, for godliness. The danger is to substitute personality, background, and culture for godliness so that we raise little Pharisees who become big Pharisees. And they pray. And they tithe. And they fast. And they honor the Sabbath. And their bodies, which are whitewashed tombs. That is a particular danger for those who are brought up in the church. Now, watch the fine line. Are we saying, well, therefore, I'm not going to teach my kid to be courteous. I'm not going to teach my kid to tithe. My kid's not going to learn to obey the Sabbath. Then they'll really know they're sinners. You don't do that. I've talked to people that said that. That's their justification. You see what indwelling sin does. He says, ah, my children are really going to know the power of indwelling sin. I said to him, yeah, if they're around for you to tell them, they're so unruly, they're running all over the place. No, no. But that is a particular danger for those who are brought up in the church. And Jesus dealt with it. Jesus came to a covenant child par excellence, Nicodemus. And Nicodemus knew his Bible, sort of. And he knew that Jesus was a good teacher and you respect your good teachers. He called him rabbi. He was very respectful. No one, he said, can do these things unless God's with him. He was a very respectful Orthodox Presbyterian of his own day. And what did Jesus say? He said, in essence, Nicodemus, stop. 
you've got to be born again. I did this at a conference once a number of years ago and a pastor of another denomination, but a reformed denomination, came to me. He had been told he was never to say in the pulpit that the covenant children must be born again. They were baptized. They were members of the church. They were learning the catechism. They were born again. And it's no wonder that that denomination today is full of traditional whitewashed tombs. My dear pastor friends, you say to your people, you've got to be born again. You've got to have a new heart. Again, Nicodemus, covenant child, par excellence. Okay? So temperament modification is not. Let me give you some examples. I don't want to spend too much time in this, but let me, let me just apply what you do with this. Okay? In temperament modification, to avoid it, you and others must bring yourselves to aspects of righteousness that are not natural to you. And I say natural in parentheses. I know that nothing is natural. All is of grace and the goodness of God. I mean, some of us are temperamentally different. I'll give you some examples. Okay? If you are naturally a gentle soul, that's not naturally me. By the way God made me up and by living in New York for 20 years, gentleness is not one of the things that marks me naturally. Okay? But if you are a gentle soul, then rather than say, ah, that's grace, challenge yourself that Jesus said, I didn't come to bring peace, I came to bring a sword. Some of you are so gentle and presbytery, you don't want to say anything. You've got to remember that the Lord gives you a sword as well. You're to be faithful and you're to speak, okay? If you are one who is naturally bold, and this is where I really had to grapple early on in my ministry, I thank the Lord that my bold preaching... I had an elder who said to me once, Bill, I don't mind you referring to hell in your preaching, but have you ever wept when you've done it? And I had to realize the servant of the Lord does not strive. He must be apt to teach, patient, in meekness instructing those who oppose themselves, if God peradventure should give them repentance to the knowledge of the truth. Now I had to load my conscience with that text because that's not what I was by nature, and even at that point, in grace. If you are one who is naturally a hard-working person and God has blessed your hard work with wealth, load your consciences with lessons about self-denial and contentment. Because that's what you struggle with. You always want more, always want to work harder, gain more things. The self-denial and contentment. If you're naturally one who by, naturally by grace, if I could put it that way, you're a strong leader. You load your conscience with the fact that God tells you to submit to one another. Our nation has been riddled by strong leaders who, when their path gets crossed, start another denomination. I don't care how reformed they are. That's not what you do. You learn to submit to one another unless you're asked to sin. To the activist, always got to be doing something the American way. Load your conscience with God who says, Be still and know that I am God. And then you'll get over the idea that by your activism, you're going to bring in my kingdom. And if you're one who is naturally contemplative, sometimes you need the lesson, why do you still stand still? Right? Okay, now those are just some examples of what you do to avoid just resting in temperate modification. And that's why God has purposes in various trials and providences that come your way to help get you out of your rut, so to speak. Mortification, then, is not refining areas of strength. It is attacking your areas 
of weakness. And this is one of the glories of Christ's work as King. He has a particular battle for each one of you. We must fight together as the church. But in terms of the Lord's promise to make you holy, He has a battle for each one of you in here. And He may use your children, your parents, a church situation, a neighborhood, a government, your own indwelling sin, as He always does. But He'll use any one of or all of those things to make you fight the battle for holiness that you might be made more exactly like Christ. If you can see things from the perspective of eternity, you'll look back and see that every battlefield on which the Lord put you, the world, the flesh, and the devil, was a battle in which the Lord wasn't expecting you to do what He's already done. It's a battle in which He was making you more like Himself. That's one of the glorious truths of this. And you can find texts for yourself that deal with them. Okay? Number... One, two, three, four. Diversion. D. A, B, C, D. Mortification is not diversion. What is diversion? It is putting up a roadblock to sin and then redirecting the traffic. Okay, that is diversion. Putting up a roadblock to sin and then redirecting the traffic. That was Simon Magus in Acts chapter 8. He gave up his sorceries, but he was still covetous, he was still ambitious, and he was still bitter. Once I talked to a man who was involved in a recovery program, and he came and he said, Pastor, I'll go to it if you really think it will be helpful to me, but I'm going to tell you my problem. He said, at the first recovery meeting that I went to last night, a man stood up and he said, Hi, my name is so-and-so, I gave up alcohol, and now I took up women. Now that is, see, diversion of his own sin. How does it come? It comes by people changing their interests, changing their relations, having changes in health, or changes in age. That's how diversion from sin can come. John Owen, in his own inimitable way, put it this way, Men in age do not usually persist in the pursuit of youthful lusts. Except in our culture, where men who are 80 years old still think they're 16. But Owen was writing in a different time, when people didn't usually live to be 80. Men in age do not usually persist in the pursuit of youthful lusts, although they have never mortified any one of them. Now you see what he says. Those youthful lusts, whatever they are, don't apply to them anymore because they're older, or don't apply in the same way. And so they think, ah, because this doesn't bother me anymore, I'm holy. Owen says, he who has changed pride for worldliness, sensuality for Phariseeism, vanity in himself to the contempt of others, let him not think that he has mortified the sin that he seems to have left. He has changed his master, but is a servant still. Pastors, you know what we're getting at here? Here's a man who comes to the church and he has had a complete change in his life. Now he's on fire for the doctrines of the Scriptures and the Reformed faith. And he's a different person. And you find out in a few months this is one proud, haughty Calvinist who's out to tell everybody else all of their errors. I see what he did. He changed from one thing his ignorance or his disinterest or his sensuality. He got a hold of some good reform books and you say, ah, now he's a Christian. He's just full of pride that the devil's full of. Or to give you another example, here's someone who gets zeal for the Lord. This person living a lascivious life, giving himself over to drink, suddenly gives up drink and is going to be zealous to follow Christ. And three months later, they expect they're going to be made elders in the church because of their zeal for the Lord. 
Now you see, they become ambitious in a different way. Now someone goes from a life of ill-discipline and someone becomes then suddenly very devoted to the Word of God. They become enamored of personal discipline in every area of life. That's one of my concerns with books about the disciplines of the Christian life. I believe in disciplines in the Christian life, but a disciplined person can do them and think they're Christians. Okay? So you see how they can shift from one thing to the other. Remember, the devil is subtle and he's tricky. And he'll work even through that deception of indwelling sin. So you put a roadblock up against one and the devil will find, say, fine, just take a different street and we'll go to the same place. And that is especially dangerous when parents divert sin in their children. Oh, I don't want you to hit your brother. Here, read a book. No, you need to repent of the sin of hitting your brother. Okay? And you need to realize that that is sin. Or... Christian service to overcome sin. Have you ever met a person like that? They live a horrible, debauched life. And they're converted under the preaching of the Word. And two days later, they call the pastor and say, Pastor, the Lord is calling me to the mission field. See? Okay? So those are the kinds of things we're dealing with, with diversion. Number, or letter E, is I just call it getting religion. Getting religion. What's the situation with getting religion? Well, Sin comes like a terrorist in the camp. We'll follow the martial language here. Sin comes like a terrorist in the camp and it strikes. Here's someone all of a sudden overtaken by particular sin. Never knew they lived like that. And then the sin goes and it hides. But the victim goes on guard. He is running scared. There's a real enemy out there. But the enemy goes away for a while and then he rationalizes. He says, well, he's gone. He's done enough after he makes all those vows, and then the person goes back to some old patterns until a new attack comes. He got scared. He comes to church. He sits under preaching. He reads his Bible. He goes to the Bible study. He goes to the discipleship groups. wants to come to church membership because he's so scared about sin. And in battle with sin for a while, well, what do I need the Bible studies for? Why do I need to go to church? And goes back to his own patterns. King Saul, wonderful example of that, or terrible example, however you want to look at it. He repented after David came to his camp. Oh, David, what a fool I've been. I've sinned against you. Well, you know how long that lasted before he was after David's hide again. Especially in times of judgment and in times of affliction, people will go to church. You see it in prison. Pastor, you can have a wonderful Bible study in prison. And I'm not against Bible studies in prisons. I've done them. But I'm going to tell you, I've never had one person. Of all the Bible studies I've done in prisons, who's ever come to church afterwards, Pastor, I'm going to be there. I'm getting out of prison in three months. Where's that church? Give me the direction. What time's the service? I'll even be there early before Bible school. I'll help you set up the chairs. I'll do anything. So-and-so got out of prison last week. You ever seen one? I'm not saying it doesn't happen. At least I've never seen it. But you see what happens. Revivals in every prison or the old line. There's no atheists in foxholes. So all of those five things, there's relative importance, you see. In each of these things, I mean, God might take a person, the person's concerned, got to straighten up his life, and he listens to a Matt Curto, and he says, hey, you know, you're right, the Bible, I've heard it's the Word of God, you've got a church I can go to where I hear about Jesus. Okay, so moral reformation may be the conduit to Christ. And even get religion. You know, there are people, and their testimony is, I was on a deathbed, I heard the nurses say, not going to live overnight. And I was on the bed and I realized there's a God with whom I had to do. And I came to church and heard the gospel and was converted. There's a relative importance of each of these things. But if you stop at these things, one day you're going to get caught. Because you need a new heart. The mark of the Christian. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Wash me of all of my sins. Search me and know 
my heart and try me and see if there's any wicked way in me. Let me ask you, my friends, do you have new hearts? See, that's what you look for with children. You know, with your children, there used to be these old prop planes. And you had to take these prop planes and you had to, I don't know exactly how it worked, but I see the pictures of these people pulling that propeller down. You had to yank that old thing down. And it would kind of go... That's what we are with our children. Yeah. Discipline them, you yank them out. They read their Bible. They say they're like, yeah, okay, that's what it's like. And then they go back and they don't do anything. And they go, okay, that's, that's what parent. But then there comes a point where that old propeller kicks in. Yeah. Now that's what it is with our children. Our responsibility is to pull on that propeller. Nurture your children in the Lord. When grace kicks in, the propeller works on its own by grace. Okay? And you've got to be careful to realize, to realize with your children. It's not sufficient they do it because mommy and daddy say it. Elders, when you meet with the children, you say something like, if your mommy and daddy died tonight, would you be in church tomorrow? Okay. That kind of a thing. All right, anyway, that's what we're dealing with then with these matters. Now, in the time we have left, what is mortification? Mortification is three things. A, it is an habitual weakening of the power of sin. It is an habitual weakening of the power of sin. What is habit? It is a major part of your life's activity, whether sinful or righteous. It's not sinful to tie your shoe on the left side first. It's a habit that you've got. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 15 and verse 18. 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter 1, 15. But as He who called you is holy... Now see the language again. As He who called you is holy, you also be holy, not in what you believe here, although you are, all of your holiness flows out of faith, but you also be holiness in all your conduct. Conduct. The word is anastrophe. Anastrepho, in the way you move around is your conduct because it is written be holy for I am holy verse 18 knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct the way in which you moved around received by tradition from your father now those are happy those are habits you be holy in all your habits in all the ways you move around be holy and that is over against in all the ways you moved around in the past, you were unholy. Okay, So that's the idea of habit. Owen said, powerful indeed is the empire of habit. Now remember, we are fully responsible for our habits. You may have a habit of running a red light. But if in running a red light, you broadside a car that went through a green light, you can't go to the courts, although maybe you can in California, as you can in New York sometimes, and say, oh, that's just a bad habit that I got. Sorry that he got killed. You are fully responsible for your habits. That's the importance of child nurture in the discipleship process. Now, I'm going to give you the other side of it. Your children should have a habit of knowing how to pray. Don't say, well, I'm not going to teach my children to pray until I'm sure there's the spirit of adoption in them so they can pray without being a hypocrite, our Father which art in heaven. You teach them how to pray, our Father which art in heaven, so they know how to do it when the spirit of adoption comes in them and they do it naturally by grace. Okay? But habits, you're fully responsible. But what about sinful habits? How do they work? Here's a lust. Here is a filthy habit that constantly 
turns you to evil. Let me give you one. It is a filthy, wicked habit to talk about others. It is a filthy, wicked, stench-like, awful habit to speak about others. It is backbiting. I'll tell you a little bit later how wicked it is the way it's linked in the Spirit. And it's a habit. You you come home and you talk about so-and-so, talk about so-and-so, talk about so-and-so, talk about so-and-so, and and instead of watching TV, you backbite about everyone. A filthy, wicked habit. All right? A filthy habit that constantly turns you to evil. And only restraining grace keeps you from making it worse. Okay? Genesis 6, 5. Every imagination of the thoughts of man's heart is only evil continually. And that works itself out. That Genesis 6, 5 works itself out in the filthy habit of backbiting. But, sinful habits aren't just one. Not just one lust. Sinful habits at all times are many lusts crying out within you. Building on last night's illustration, our lusts inside are like a bunch of animals at feeding time at the zoo. And they all want to be fed at once. My desire for revenge, my desire of self-righteousness, my desire to seem better than someone else, my hatred of someone else, are all lusts that are wanting to be fed at the same time. And they are constantly bent in us on satisfying self. Man worships and serves the creature more than the Creator beginning with himself. That, incidentally, parenthetically, is the great error of thinking that you will advance the gospel by having worship services that are the kinds of things people want. This is big news. People will go to something that they want. Come on. Really? People go to seminars? All you've got to do is watch what you do at the dining common. You go and you eat the stuff that you want. Man desires to satisfy himself. And there's many desires to satisfy self. Sinful habits are not just lusts. A lust, they are lusts. They work at all times. And their goal is to make provision for the flesh. My lust will make a way for me, for my flesh, to do what is sinful. That's why Paul says don't make any provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. Don't even think about beforehand how you would fulfill your lusts. David did not just commit adultery with Bathsheba. He saw her. He thought of a way to get her. He thought of a way to disguise it. And then to cover everything over, he thought of a way to get rid of her husband. And that's the way lusts work. They will contrive a way for the body to sin to make a provision for the flesh. And its method is, back to the series, to fight, to battle, and to overtake with violence. Romans 7 and verse 23. Notice again the language of what we looked at this morning in Romans 7 and verse 23. I see another law in my members strategizing against the law of my mind. My mind renewed by grace says I'm not going to sin. That law in my members wars again and says, says, oh yes, you are. And it will bring me into captivity to the law of sin which is still there in my members. 
1 Peter 2.11 Abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. And I say it respectfully. He does not say, appropriate all of the mercies you have in Christ. He says, you stay away from fleshly lusts that war against your soul. And pastors, you've got to say that to people. I have a homosexual that comes to my study. And he cannot be with certain people without falling into his own sin. I tell him of the glory and the grace of Christ. And I tell him, my friend, you stay away. And you make yourself accountable to someone else. I'm going to tell you it is a form of denial of what the Scriptures teach if you're not willing to say that. Abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. You've got fleshly lusts and they will lob you with their bombs and they'll shoot you with their bullets and they'll have their flamethrowers go out and they'll scar you and destroy you and you stay away. That's the language that he uses. What is the right response? Weaken the habit so it doesn't war against you so violently. Galatians 5 and verse 24. Galatians, the fifth chapter and verse 24. And those who are in Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. By God's grace, meritoriously, they know they are dead in Christ and they say, I am dead to that. Paul says, I am crucified with Christ by which the world is crucified to me. That world is like a corpse on a cross to me. And I to the world. I'm like a corpse on a cross to the world. Paul says now, that is to be done practically with respect to your passions and your lusts. Some lusts, of course, are stronger than others. Some lusts are more obvious than others. Some lusts are more socially acceptable than others. But you need to treat all of those lusts when the temptation comes to say, man, it's like offering a million bucks to a corpse. You're not just dealing with the fruit here. You don't kill apple trees by beating the apples. You say, no, no, I want to sentence it to death by the death of Christ. Use the weapon of a contrary righteous pattern. That's the language in the Scriptures. Put on the Lord Jesus and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. You put off the old man and you put on the new. Don't ever tell people just put off sin. You've got to say, now look, here is a positive pattern that you are to follow in your own Christian life. For pride, you must put on humility. For your own zeal and for your own frustrations, you must put on patience. For your own impurity, you walk in purity and you set the standards however it's necessary. That's why Paul says it's better to marry than to burn with passion. It won't cure passion, but it'll give you a lawful outlet for it. For your stinginess, liberality, for earthly mindedness, heavenly mindedness. Now you see what that is. That's just as saying, I'm dead to earthly mindedness. It's saying, no, no, I put on heavenly mindedness. And when earthly mindedness wants to smother me, I say, I know, I set my affections on things above. When my own stinginess wants to stab me and prick me, I say, no, I'm going to give and give more liberally. 
and when pride would seek to be a great tumor within me to kill me, I'll say, no, no, in Christ, I put on humility and use all the means of grace by the Spirit to do that. Acts 2 and verse 42. The and the prayers. That's the diet that you have. You see, what is it if you're ill and you go to the doctor? The doctor doesn't just say, now you take this pill and you'll be all better. He says, now here is a diet. And that diet's going to help you to feel better. Now, it'll take a while. Now, you've got to realize this diet's going to work. I promise it. But you've got to watch your diet. Be careful. Stay away from this stuff. Eat this stuff and so on. Progressively, you're better. Now, it is the same thing then as you weaken this habit of lust. And growth in your mortification normally depends on your use of means. The apostle doctrine, the breaking of bread, the fellowship and the prayers. So it is A, an habitual weakening of the power of sin. I reckon myself dead to sin and my diet is going to be a diet that's going to help me ward off the lusts and for every lust that comes, I put on a contrary righteousness. It's interesting how Paul says now, Timothy, he says, you, you exhort those who are rich in this world. Ah, and then some people want to say, here it comes. Exhort the rich who are in this world to have only one suit and to give up everything else for the poor. He doesn't say that. He says, no. He says, you exhort them to be rich in good works. That wealth that they have, that they could trust in, is an analogy to them of the good works that they're to show to others. Now, does that mean once you do it, you're okay? No, no. You keep habitually warring against that sin. Okay? breaking the power of sin by contrary righteous patterns. Now, B, mortification is a constant battle against sin. Mortification is a constant battle against sin. Romans 8 and verse 13, the text for today, if you by the Spirit, thanatute, put to death the deeds of the flesh. Present, active, indicative. Galatians 5 and verse 17 that we looked at this morning, the flesh lasts against the Spirit. The Spirit lusts against the flesh. It is a constant battle against sin. And remember that sin, not death, sin, not the devil, sin is your greatest enemy. Benning's volume, was it Robert Benning? I forget who it was, John Benning. The plague of plagues. And he takes about 50 pages to prove that sin is your greatest enemy. Sin is spiritual aids. It will break down your own immune system spiritually and it will kill you. Okay? So there's a constant battle against your greatest enemy, which is sin. Now, incidentally, failure to remember that will make you impatient of reproof. See, See, the Scriptures say, let the righteous smite me, and it will be precious oil. Why? Because when you're smitten for your sin, that causes you to walk in the way of holiness. Failure to remember that will make you impatient of reproof. When God exhort your people, exhort you in the name of Christ to walk in holiness. You're thankful. This helps you in the battle. So remember, sin is your greatest enemy and then prepare like a good soldier. Know how your enemy fights. Some of that we'll deal with tonight. Remember what Paul said about the devil? We're not ignorant of his tricks. Magic tricks. We're not ignorant of the way he says, see, it's blue and it's really red. We're not ignorant of his devices. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles or the deceits of the devil. You know, Winston Churchill, if you really want to study statecraft, 
learn about Winston Churchill, probably the greatest statesman of the 20th century. But Churchill was a military man. And if you read about him, you'll find that Churchill was a great military man because he had an almost uncanny ability to know what the enemy was going to do. I mean, it was, it was, an, it was an awesome, eerie ability. When he said an iron curtain has descended over Europe, he knew what was coming with Soviet power. Okay? We need spiritual Winston Churchills who are aware and trained in how the devil works. It's a constant battle against sin. Remember, prepare, and then attack. And the upcoming messages are going to deal with that. But I'll tell you quickly how you attack. By a mind renewed by Bible memorization and meditation. You deal with your children tonight or tomorrow morning. Emphasize that a mind renewed by Bible memorization and meditation. Psalm 119, 9-11. How can a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed according to your word. With my whole heart I've sought you. Don't let me wander from your commandments. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation. All day. And there's no substitute for it. By music, by Bible memorization, by discussion, by daily devotions, by books that illustrate, by preaching. Get the Bible in the minds of your children. They memorize it. They meditate on it so that when they are tempted just as Jesus is, they can say, God has said this. And when the devil can come with another scripture verse, the children can say, get you behind me, Satan. God really says this being transformed by the renewing of their minds. So it's a constant battle against sin. Remember, sin is your greatest enemy. Prepare like a good soldier. Know how your enemy fights and then attacks. And then see the last point here. Mortification is actual success in overcoming sin. Not perfectly. Not the complete victory yet. That will come when Christ comes back. And you know, you know that. The wages of sin is death. And until Jesus comes back, we're going to die. So not complete victory yet. But there is actual success in overcoming sin and winning battles. How do you do that? You bring your sin to the judgment of God and to the love of Christ. Bring your sin to the judgment of God and to the love of Christ. Isaiah 53. The judgment of God. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. The good pleasure of God, whose glory is in his own justice and holiness, and whose glory is in a mercy that is not divorced from justice, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. The judgment of God, but the love of Christ by his stripes you are healed. Not just the judgment of God. Beat people over the head with the law of God abstracted from the gospel and you'll get conviction of sin but no mortification of sin. The judgment of God and the love of Christ. But not the love of Christ apart from the judgment of God. What on earth does the love of Christ mean apart from the judgment of God? Would you tell me? Well, you must tell people about the love of Christ. People don't know about the law of God and judgment. They don't know what the love of Christ is. And you bring yourself to those things. Now, you know, I'll give you another proof of it. The Lord's Supper is a sanctifying ordinance for this reason. In the Lord's Supper, you bring yourself to the judgment of God, judgment day honesty, if we 
judge ourselves at the Lord's Supper. The day of judgment and the awesome holiness and justice of God comes upon us. And at the Supper of the Lord, if we judge ourselves, we would not be judged and condemned with the world. Take, eat. This is my body broken for you. Drink from my blood. Now see, that's why the Lord's Supper is a sanctifying ordinance to help us in our mortification. Bring your sin to the judgment of God and the love of Christ. And then, my friends, sentence your sin. Don't you have light views of what God says about sin? When God says it is sin and the prosecuting attorney of the Holy Spirit is in you speaking, you find it guilty. I hear this with people wanting to condone all forms of sexual perversion short of actual intercourse. And they'll justify it in all different ways. Jesus says if a man looks at a woman to lust, he's committed adultery. And that's the sentence. Guilty. And then lead it to execution. How can I do this great wickedness and sin against God and then run away from Potiphar's wife whatever it takes in war there's no substitute for victory and there's no greater war than the war against sin you do what it takes and I'm going to tell you practically what that means men it means there are going to be some sales girls in stores and you won't go to them and it's going to mean men you might have your wives look at those catalogs that come in your door because if you were to look at some of the pictures there, you couldn't help but lust. And it means, dear women, that you might not spend quite as much time on the phone if you're home where your conversation gets gutter-like. It means you will say, my friend, I want to covenant with you. I need to exhort you as I exhorted myself. Our conversation has been sinful. And I love to have you as a friend, but please, let's covenant together when we speak that when it gets to the point that we're going to bring up sister so-and-so and break her over the coals, we're going to stop. Now, if you think that's adding to the Word of God, what is backbiting? I mean, that's, that's the real world, folks. And then it means if you can't press the delete key on that email that's going to bring up a nude woman and you can't pull up internet sites without getting the ones of virtual sex you will get rid of your internet capacity or you learn some way to filter it out that you can't get it and I say that men because more important you get to heaven than that you know how to surf the web I, folks this is the real world, okay? I'm telling you, if you're not killing sin, it's killing you. I'll give you an example from Andrew, from Stonewall Jackson. I love this quotation. This is great. Tom, you're going to like this one too. How many military men we got here? We got some, any, Grats, great. Any Marines? Anybody that were Marines? Not spraying anybody else. You were a Marine, Bob. What happened? No. <laughs> Listen to this, this is great. From Stonewall Jackson. <clears throat> Stonewall Jackson said, If you want to win, and ultimate victory in war is everything, defeat often worse than death, 
you must never give the enemy pause, relief, or a kind thought. Give him the bayonet. And never let your men forget this. You are far kinder to them in the long run this way. The reason I mention the Marines is I have a good friend of mine who was in the church in Franklin Square for a number of years. And this guy was a Marine. Man, I'll tell you, this guy had, must have had Marine tattooed all over his body. And he said, you know, he said, first thing we learned in the Marines is when you're with your enemy, you put your bayonet right in his belly. <laughs> Shoot him. Get, all right, that's the idea of what's there. And folks, that's what you do with your sin. Give it the bayonet. And I want to ask you as we close today, how kind are you really being to yourself if you indulge your lusts? Some of us know what it is to go to the doctor and have the doctor say, you don't change your diet. You're going to drop dead. My friends, you don't change a diet in which you eat and drink sin and you'll kill yourself. You're not being good to yourself. That doctor would not be kind to you if he smoothed it over. And I wouldn't be kind to you if I said anything else but. But be sure you're fighting the real battle. And be sure you're fighting the real battle. Now, there's two fundamental rules for fighting the real battle. But you're going to have to wait till tomorrow for that. Let's pray. Oh, Lord our God, thank You that we can consider these things in a climate of love and acceptance. We know that in many cases there would be horrible hostility to these things. But we are thankful, our Lord, that through Your church, through Your Word, through Your grace, You sensitize us to realize that this really is what the Bible says. And we really are convicted that we've got to be sure we're fighting the real battle and we've got to be sure that we're fighting the real battle. Oh Lord, make us soldiers. Make us men and women soldiers. Make our children soldiers. Lord, may they go down the hill at the end of this week knowing that they are soldiers of the Lord Jesus. And our Lord, thank You so much that You're not only the...